Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 119, The Histories of Zionisms. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And in our continuing series looking at the role that Israel might play in the future of American Jewish life, we thought it would be interesting to look a little bit at the history of Israel and Zionism in the minds of American Jews. Our guest today, Professor Noam Pianko, is an expert on the history of Zionism, and in particular, the history of American Zionism. Noam Pianko is the Samuel N. Strom Chair of Jewish Studies and professor in the Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington, where he also directs the Samuel and Althea Strom Center for Jewish Studies and serves as the Herbert and Lucy Prusin Professor of Jewish Studies. Noam Pianko is the author of the book Zionism and the Roads Not Taken, Ravidovich Kaplan Cohn, published in 2010, and also of the book Peoplehood, an American Innovation, published in 2015. His current project, along with Dr. Judah Bernstein, is a book tentatively entitled Cold War Zionisms and American Jewish Politics. We're excited to have a chance to dig deep into the history of American Zionism, with Noam Pianko. Noam, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. So I think that a really good place for us to start would be, can you give us a little bit of a sense of the early days of modern Zionism and how how it came about and what was the pathway that sort of brought us to the founding of the State of Israel? But But I'm also particularly intrigued by your first book, on Zionism, Zionism, the road's not taken, and the idea that there were also alternative conceptions of the meaning of Zionism that were out there at the time and that may or may not still be relevant today. So the history of Zionism is something that's incredibly challenging to tell and to relate because like any history, it's told through the lens of contemporary politics. And the politics around Zionism are polarized. And so everybody looks to a history that kind of explains their contemporary situation. So I, I think it's important to start with that because even as an academic, my, my job is to try to be as objective as possible. The reality is anytime you tell the story of Zionism, there are a lot of implicit assumptions and messages that go into it that I think are um, challenging to whatever narrative you may have grown up with or, or to know about. So in some ways, your listeners who have never learned anything about Zionism may actually have an advantage because so much of what we know about Zionism is filtered through a set of very contemporary political assumptions rather than the history of the movement itself. Zionism is a movement of uh, Jewish nationalism fundamentally. And even here, the, where you start the story is itself political. I think one place to start the story of Zionism would be back in the biblical period, and that Zionism actually starts with the Hebrew Bible, and it starts with the ancient Israelites who had a sovereign uh, state or political home in the land of Israel, and Zionism is the modern movement to return to that ancestral homeland. And so in, in that story, the link between modern Zionism and the ancient biblical story of, of, of Israelites in the land of Israel 
is really connected and is a direct line. And, and oftentimes the history of the 2000 years in between can kind of disappear, in fact, until quite recently. And, and, maybe, and maybe still, if you go into an Israeli history lesson in high school, you will learn all about the Jewish experience until 70 or at least the, the, um, the Bar Kokhba revolt in the 130s. And then you will jump ahead to 1881 and the persecution of Jews in, in Eastern Europe as if there is absolutely no meaningful history between those two points. My starting point for Zionism is Jewish life in Europe in the 19th and early 20th century. Jews in Europe in the late 18th and early 19th century were excited about the promise of emancipation, that Jews would be able to become citizens in European countries, and the compromise that they developed with the, with, the, with, the ruling, with the rulers of those countries or the governments of those countries was that if Jews were able to better themselves, if Jews were able to become more like the non-Jews, their neighbors, that Jews would be able to become full citizens. And so they bent over backwards to demonstrate that they were able to be full citizens of whatever country they were living in. And what that meant is that one of the major moves for Jewish thought in the 19th century was actually to claim and to argue that Judaism was not a nation at all, and that the references to a national homeland were purely religious references. And in fact, Jews were religion and didn't make any national claims because they were concerned that by making national claims, their allegiance to their country and their citizenship might be challenged. Toward the end of the 19th century, the promise of emancipation became increasingly unlikely, that instead of facing new opportunities for integration, that even Jews who had acculturated, who had learned the language of their country, who had joined the armies of their countries, who had done all the things that they thought they would need to do in order to be accepted as full and equal citizens, in reality, it led to increased tension, less toleration, and, and, and Jews feeling increasingly threatened, both in Western Europe and in Eastern Europe. So an alternate conception of Jewish identity arose in the late 19th century, and that alternate conception was Jewish nationalism. And Jewish nationalism took many forms, but what's important to remember at the beginning of Jewish nationalism is that it's formed by two fundamental processes. The first was a sense that Jews were not going to be allowed to integrate into their host nations or their host countries, and therefore they needed to define their own national existence because they were being defined as outsiders anyway. And the second was one of emulation, that they looked around and saw that many minority communities in uh, Central and Eastern Europe were developing national identities, new flags, new languages, and Jews saw that and wanted to be like their neighbors in asserting their national identity. So you have the, the push of feeling that emancipation has failed and the pull of the way in which other minority communities were asserting their own cultural, social, and political ties through national identity formation that Zionism and Jewish nationalism more broadly begins to take root. It sounds to me like one could make the distinction between Jewish nationalism that had in mind as an end goal the creation of a Jewish state versus Jewish nationalism that might have some other goal in mind or that might include a state but not be limited to the bringing about of a state, which is, I think, how at least most Jews seem to think about 
what Zionism or Jewish nationalism or any nationalism means. And so could you help me understand a little bit, both in the Jewish context and in general, like what would it mean to have a nationalism that was other than the process that was ultimately about trying to bring about a state? Today, Zionism is understood as the creation of an independent Jewish state in the land of Israel. And uh, in fact, much of how we think about Zionism, how American Jews relate to the state of Israel, is based on an assumption that Jews need a state and that national communities need a political homeland. This was, is a completely anachronistic concept. When Zionism begins developing in the late 19th and the early 20th century, the world was not yet divided into nation states. That's something that takes place quite slowly after World War I and accelerating after World War II. In the first few decades of the 20th century, Europe and other parts of the globe were controlled by large multinational empires. So the idea that a minority national group would need to have their own state in order to affirm their national identity would have made very little sense to most Jews or non-Jews in the um, living within those multinational empires. So when Jewish nationalism begins, the emphasis is not on the homeland or on sovereignty. The emphasis is on Jewish culture. It is on Jewish languages. It is on Jewish ethnic or racial identification. And it is on the hopes that Jews can have some sort of autonomy. But this is very different than the idea that Jewish nationalism would have to mean Jewish statehood. In fact, if you look back historically, you have nationalism as part of the Bund, which was a socialist nationalist movement that was uh, very popular in Eastern Europe. And then even within Zionism, you have a very open debate and in fact fluid boundaries between Zionists who thought that the goal would be to build a homeland in Palestine or Argentina or other places, and also whether or not the state was the goal. Many Jewish nationalists and Zionists saw Zionism and Jewish nationalism as an alternative definition and notion of nationalism to the idea of nation-state nationalism. So for other national groups, as they were thinking about what types of identity they, their national group would like to take on, they debated ideas about the relationship between nation and state. Because Zionism and, Jew and Jews were dispersed around different nation states, they had a very different perspective on Jewish nationalism. They saw it from the perspective of a minority community living within another nation state often. So whether they were in France or Germany or the United States, they were grappling with what it meant to be a minority. And Zionist thought develops not only thinking about the homeland, but often thinking about the status of Jews within the countries where many Jews were living. So Zionism in the United States, for example, was primarily concerned with defining Zionism as an ethical type of nationhood, a type of nationalism that would be different from other nationalisms. The nationalisms that were the bad nationalisms were the ones that tried to link national identity with political citizenship. And as minority communities, even in the United States in the early part of the 20th century, Jews felt threatened by dominant national religious groups claiming that their nation or religion also defined the state and the state's identity. So Zionism in the hands of American Jewish thinkers like Horace Kalin or Israel Zangwill 
was a way of articulating a Jewish definition of collectivity that was more ethical than the nation state notion of collectivity, because what Jews could add was a way that they could be connected to one another and share a culture without necessarily demanding that everybody in the state would have the exact same culture. I try to be a student of some of this stuff, but it's still very, very hard to think about Zionism through the eyes of someone that isn't in my own time period. It, like, even as I try to, because it has been so enshrined as, as a statehood question and not uh, not a, uh, really anything besides that. So I appreciate this. But um, I, w- I was noting, you mentioned Israel Zangwill quickly. And just for folks interested, I recently read The Melting Pot, which is this fascinating play by Israel Zangwill that really is sort of quintessentially, I mean, we can argue about what that means, but it, it it's, he's coming from this deeply American place. And there's characters that like really bring up a lot of issues of early 20th century Jewish life and even interfaith questions. And, and it's just, it helps get a sense of the mindset that some of the people who would have been interacting with Zionism early in the 20th century, why it might've spoken to them as Americans who deeply wanted to feel American. It's interesting that Zangwill is now known as such an American thinker. But what's fascinating about Zengwill and he writes The Melting Pot is he's actually visiting the United States. He's based in England and he is going in and out of the Zionist movement and he uh, is somebody who ultimately doesn't feel that settlement in Palestine is crucial. He's open to other locations. But I think the interesting thing about, about Zengwill is that from the perspective of thinking about Jewish national identity, he could so easily write a novel that becomes one of the defining characteristics of what American identity would be, which is the melting pot identity. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that the issue at stake was really an issue of how Jews could be different in modern nation states. And the United States was one of those places that it was not clear at the time, especially in the early 20th century, that Jews would have a, a tolerated or would, have, would, be, it would be fully accepted as American citizens. So um, Zangwill was able to come and, and, and really imagine this idea of the melting pot, which is all about a, a, a Russian Jew and an American whose parents come from Russia, whose grandparents were fighting each other, and in this country they can fall in love and get married. So that's a Zionist vision. Why is it a Zionist vision? Because it was somebody who's trying to understand what is the relationship between Jewish collective identity and modern citizenship. Another Zionist vision was Horace Callan, who came up with the idea of cultural pluralism, where there are multiple national groups within the political entity. And he saw American, America as a nation of nationalities. So the two fundamentally kind of opposing, sometimes in uh, sometimes opposing, sometimes not, visions of America, one as a melting pot where anybody can be melt in, the other as a nation of nationalities, both come out of individuals who are deeply rooted in questions of Jewish nationalism and Zionism. I think that's very important. And what it does is it gives us a sense of how we think about Zionism in the pre-1948 period. And I think one way to answer your question is to kind of divide up the history of American Zionism into three moments, three periods. The first is pre-1948 and pre-Holocaust. The second would be between 1948 and the 
and then and the nineteen sixties, the late nineteen sixties, early nineteen seventies, and the final would be between the nineteen seventies and today. In the first period, American Zionism until nineteen forty eight was a movement that was very interested in Jewish nationalism as a way of revitalizing American Jewish life. This is something that today would be kind of astounding when we look at the limited power and even the idea that American Jews should not be able to say a word about Israel or Zionism, that it's not our business. The core of Zionism for American Jewish leaders in the early part of the 20th century, for those small numbers who actually supported Zionism, most including the entire reform movement, were, not, were non-Zionist or anti-Zionist. The American Jews who were Zionists saw Zionism as an engine for creating a renaissance of Jewish life in the United States. That was the power of Zionism. And the way that that would be done would be to create a homeland center that would allow Jewish culture and nationality to spread to the United States where it was necessary. So Zionism was about establishing a homeland, what that homeland looked like and whether it needed to be sovereign in any way, shape or form, that wasn't the conversation. What it needed to do was to organize and empower Jews around the world to develop a national identity that could allow Jews to be connected to Jewish culture and history without necessarily being religious. As we're progressing through history, we're reaching a big set of moments in the early and then middle of the 20th century. And I'd love to hear from you sort of what, what happens next in the evolution of Zionism as, as, of course, the Holocaust enters into the equation and then the state of Israel is made a reality. The majority of American Jews uh, until the 1940s are non-Zionists or an even anti-Zionists. So the idea that Zionism, which today is is kind of the, the, the fundamental core of an American Jew's identity. An American Jew can walk, in, walk out of a synagogue and have a cheeseburger and hail a cab on Shabbat and you know, do all sorts of other, other things that may violate the 613 meets vote. But if they cross the street and enter into a, a rally, an anti-Israel rally or a pro-Palestine rally, somehow their identity as a Jew is put into question, and they're often assumed to be a self-hating Jew or somebody who has been convinced by, uh, by, by anti-Semitic tropes, whatever it might be. That was not the way that Jewish identity was understood in this country. The role that Israel played in the period before 19, well, there was no Israel before 1948, but, but Zionism was often something that would marginalize a Jew from the Jewish community much more than demonstrate their commitment to it. That most Jews until, 19, until the late 1940s are, are non-Zionist or anti-Zionist. With the founding of the state of Israel, there's an interesting phenomenon where even the large number of non-Zionist American Jews become integrated into a broader Zionist American Jewish community. So the distinction between Zionist organizations and non-Zionist American Jewish institutions, like the American Jewish Committee, for example, begins to dissipate. But what's fascinating is when these large numbers and institutions of non-Zionist American Jews become or acknowledge a connection to this new state of Israel, 
they have some very clear demands. It is not a, uh, a relationship that is automatic. Here is an amazing quote from 1950 when Jacob Blaustein, who is the American, head of the American Jewish Committee, he has an agreement with Ben-Gurion, right? That Ben-Gurion has to have an agreement with the head of the American Jewish Committee in order for the American Jewish Committee to fully sort of sign on to support for the state. And what does Blaustein say in a part of the agreement that's rarely quoted? A note of caution to Israel and its leaders. Israel must recognize that the matter of goodwill between its citizens and those of other countries is a two-way street, that Israel also has a responsibility in this situation, a responsibility in terms of not affecting adversely the sensibilities of Jews who are citizens of other states by what it says or what it does. American Jews, Blaustein says, are only going to feel connected to and support this new state of Israel if Israel recognizes that American Jews have a set of sensibilities that must be respected and the connection to Israel is not carte blanche. This is a shocking statement to hear in 2018. There are other statements from this period, the 50s and the early 60s, where leaders of major Zionist organizations make similar demands on the state of Israel. So Zionism, really through the 50s and early 60s, was conditional. American Jews had a conditional relationship to the state of Israel that required that Israeli leaders recognize that diaspora Jewish communities have a set of sensibilities, which I think are around democracy, around human rights, around, around religious pluralism, that could not be violated without risking American Jews no longer being connected to the state of Israel. So during this period, after the establishment of the state of Israel, and, and yes, the Blaustein and, and Ben-Gurion have this agreement, how, how did it go? I know we're going to talk about the impact of the 1967 war after this, but we've got like a 19, 20-year period what was the nature in in real life in real time of the of Israel and the American Jewish community at that time and were there already issues happening where you know the nature of Zionism was changing and in ways that American Jews were grading against or was that kind of a 20 year glory days type of period the period after 1948 between 1948 and the uh, late 60s is characterized in the American Jewish experience by the Cold War. And the Cold War has a huge impact on how American Jews think about Israel and Zionism. And for this, I just want to highlight that I'm, I'm working on a project now with my colleague Judah Bernstein, and, and, we've, uh, and I want to you know, thank him and our partnership to think as, as, as how I've been thinking about kind of the role that the Cold War plays. The Cold War, during the Cold War period, the enemy to the United States was communism around the world and the Soviet Union. And the whole policy of containment meant that there was a value for Americans to try and ensure that American values and policies were spread to all these different client states around the world. So Israel felt fit in very well in this Cold War ideology, and it made it very easy for American Jews to have a positive relationship with Israel. 
because American Jews felt that the United States was the country that was on the right side of this Cold War. We were spreading democracy against, uh, and, and even religion, the ethical values of religion around the world, and we were competing with the Soviet Union. And in order to do that successfully, we needed to have countries, client states around the world that would be connected to our values. So American Jews were able to say, we can be American cold warriors by making sure that Israel retains its role as a democratic state in the Middle East and doesn't fall to the communists. So that made it very easy, in a sense, for American Jews to reconcile Zionism and Americanism and created a period where the relationship could flourish without too many major issues. The small issues that arose during this period primarily had to do with questions of religious pluralism, and there were already efforts by American Jewish organizations to push for more religious pluralism in Israel. Another advantage to this period that made it sort of simple and created a consensus was that this was before the 67 war, and while there was still a minority of Palestinian Arabs in the state of Israel, it was a small enough number that it did not raise major questions that clashed with inter the international community's perspective on how nation states should treat their minority citizens. So now we're so now we're reaching a moment that I I feel is is talked about all over the place in terms of Jewish history, American Jewish history even, um, which is, but we're talking about the 1967 war, which doesn't take place in America, but um, many have spoken about its impact on American Jewish life and on American Jewish relationship to Israel. One thing I'm noticing, and may maybe it's just a interesting thing I'm noticing, but when you've spoken about the eras, uh, the three different eras that you lay up, you don't you haven't said that the third era begins with the 67 war. You've said the late 60s. And maybe that's just a linguist. Maybe that's just how you put it. But I'm curious if that's significant. Um, and if and if there's a claim there about what the 67 war did and didn't do in and of itself to affect American Jewish ideas around Zionism. Um, so that's number one. And then just more broadly, independent of that particular interest of mine, like what what happens in 1967 or in the late 60s? Um, and how do we see the, the next wave of evolution in terms of how American Jews conceive of Zionism and its place in, in their lives? It's a great question. You would get an A in my history class. <laughs> the, the place that dates has in telling a story are crucial. And you're absolutely right that our understanding of Zionism, both in America and Israel, has focused on 67 as the seminal moment when all of a sudden, as Norman Podhart says, we are all Zionists now. This is the moment where American Jews fully embrace Zionism and are proud and vocal of their Jewish brethren. And that is uh, the, the start of the moment of kind of a consensus. I actually see it very differently, uh, both in terms of the, the timeline and in terms of where, where, when was the consensus and when was actually the fragmentation? I see, as you just heard in, in talking about the period of the 50s and early 60s, a great deal of consensus in the 50s and 60s. And the fragmentation actually starts in the, in the late 60s and the early 70s. And the reason that I see it this way is, um, is because I de-emphasize the role that 1967 plays in American Jewish politics and the relationship to Israel. 
In my mind, the key is not 67, but it's actually the period 64, 65, with the rise of the radical left, of the new left, the anti-war, uh, uh, anti anti-Vietnam anti protests, and the escalation of the Vietnam War, and also the escalation of the civil rights movement as we shift into a time where black power becomes an increasingly important part of the way the civil rights movement is being articulated. What happens in the early 60s is that many Jews become engaged in, these civil, in the civil rights and anti-Vietnam movement. And they begin to challenge the assumptions of the Cold War that the United States is really spreading democracy for altruistic and universalist reasons. And instead, they become quite cynical about the role that the United States is playing around the world. And, um, uh, and, and so their criticism of America in this country becomes quite threatening to the establishment or to other American Jews who are worried that there are so many young Jewish activists who are questioning America both nationally and internationally in terms of what its ultimate values are. And we can see this, for example, in 1968, Arthur Waskow has something called a Freedom Seder, which is really an amazing document. Uh, amazing document and an amazing event. Waskow puts together a large Seder, which includes members of uh, African Americans. It's held in an African American church in Washington, D.C., and Jews. And he does something that today is actually quite normative, but was quite kind of controversial and novel at the time, which is he tells the story of Passover through the lens of other groups, including African Americans and, and members and, and members of, of black nationalist parties and organizations who are striving for freedom. And this actually kicks off a tremendous amount of opprobrium and anger from an, a growing neoconservative part of the Jewish community. You have Commentary Magazine calling Arthur Waskow a self-hating Jew. So what the heck does this have anything to do with Israel? Many of these young activists in the civil rights and Vietnam War era protests go on to start raising questions about whether or not there should be a Palestinian state after the 1967 war. So from my perspective, instead of seeing 1967 as being the moment in which all Jews rally around the strength in, in Israel and their pride in being Jewish, what it also raises is you have a group of young Jews who have been involved in some of these left organizations and have been critical of America and now see a parallel to what happened in America and Vietnam now happening in Israel and the West Bank. So it's actually the kind of the end of the Cold War in some ways or the, the softening of the Cold War in the late 60s that creates a split in the American Jewish community between those who feel that American Jews need to criticize America for its actions and also make sure that Israel doesn't follow in those types of um, efforts to take over other countries in the hopes of trying to spread some sort of democratic value or because they need to for all sorts of international reasons. And on the other side, a group that feels like 
the Cold War is still raging, and even more, Israel's security is at more at risk than ever, and the last thing we want to be doing is to be raising questions about Israel. And that is what leads us into the period in the, in the 70s where this split becomes um, quite clear, and I'm happy to talk a little bit more about when that happens, if you'd like. Yeah, I'd love to talk more about that. And um, I'm in some circles that are really excited and have done a lot of digging into sort of re-elevating and recognizing and centralizing the story of an organization called Brera, which arises in the 70 and means alternative, which is, it's a Hebrew word for alternative. Um, and it implies by its very name that there is now, as you've spoken about, sort of a mainstream that is Zionist such that the alternative would be, I mean, Brera doesn't challenge Zionism, but Brera starts to challenge ideas of, like you said before, of pushing for Palestinian statehood. And its life was pretty short. It only lasted a few years, but it made a big splash. And there are more and more people sort of looking back on it as sort of a key quintessential example of what it looks like to be an American Jew that's sort of coming from a Jewish perspective, but deeply criticizing Israel. So I guess I'd love to hear about the 70s and about sort of the beginnings of these dissenting ideas within Jewish life and how that starts to maybe steamroll, maybe not, I don't know, but um, how it evolves. Those are great questions. I think Brera is a is an example and one of the reasons why for me the, the periodization of the switch goes until 1977 when Brera is sort of really formally and very publicly pushed out of the mainstream of the Jewish community. They're kind of declared as, as marginal. And I think learning more about their story, which I'm happy to share, is helpful to see how there's been a, a split that occurred in that decade where Zionism splits into two different camps. One is a progressive Zionism and the other is an Israelism. And progressive Zionism is trying to continue to hold on to the idea that Zionism is about a global Jewish renaissance about supporting the Jewish people, and that ultimately Zionism needs to support progressive ideals and to represent Jewish values. And on the other side, you have an Israelism that says that the most important value that Jews have is survival, and that American Jews need to do whatever it takes to ensure Israel's survival. And the split happens, you can see it happen with Brera. Brera is created by young Jews who really come from two different groups, and also young. I mean, um, they have supporters from some established members of the Jewish community as well. But the two groups that they come with are basically a group of, of Jews who had been increasingly interested in, in the two-state solution and peace activism in Israel, and a group of American Jews who actually were interested in the revital, re, revitalization of American Jewish life and, and were part of uh, things like the Chavurah, or in, in Washington, uh, D.C., you have other kind of parallel organizations that are developing at the same time. So the, the, the Brera group was trying to answer both of these questions at the same time. Brera is, is a relatively small organization, but they do attract interest of many people in Hillel, on campuses, and also a number of, of, of American Jewish leaders who at the beginning, saw them saw Brera's very much within the kind of position that they could take, but those folks were forced to choose over the next few years about whether or not they would side with Brera and those positions of openly advocating for a two-state solution versus those who would say that, well, we can't talk about that right now, and our job is not to meet with Palestinians or even to, 
to push Israeli policy in any direction. So Beira gains momentum between 72 and 76, 77. And then there is an organized Jewish communal response that argues that Beira is actually a group of self-hating pro-Palestinian Jews who should not be allowed to be part of the American Jewish community. And so much so that there was a movement in B'nai B'rith to push them out of, um, out of Hillel. So Hillel directors who were associated with Beira could lose their jobs. That was ultimately, that didn't actually happen, but there was very serious discussion about that. And it does set a pretty clear line about what Jews are and are not able to say and uh, the ways in which association with organizations, including peace organizations, will brand or will place a Jew outside of the mainstream Jewish community. And um, what's going on here really is a very political moment where Jews are being asked to choose between two different positions that's really about their attitude toward America. Should American Jews rally around the American flag and not criticize America and instead um, leave Judaism as a prophetic religion behind and basically say, we need to survive? Or should American Jews be trying to think about what it would look like to have an Israel that actually could galvanize American Jews who are committed to certain values and principles that the American government itself might not be currently carrying out? I mean, I find this particularly interesting in connecting it to our current moment in time in the sense that, uh, you know, and, and I've, I've thought about this since the Iraq war, but that it's even more true today that that train has left the station among the young American non-Orthodox Jews, meaning I think that uh, you're, you're going to be hard pressed to find any who are rallying around America right now, you know, uh, around its current government and leadership. And, and, and there's no, you know, there's no nuance there. There's no, there's no way that, that those folks are ever uh, going to be convinced that there's some redeeming virtues to Donald Trump. And at the point where that's so clearly the case, then to sort of ask those same Jews to have an approach towards Israel that somehow suggests that the right thing is to rally around it, it's just not realistic. It's just not possible, right? And and I love how you're sort of connecting the 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 American reality to sort of what's plausible in terms of Israel. And and I think that you know one of the things that I think that we're grasping for language to to talk about is you know how do you understand that Jews live within larger historical forces of America or of the world, and there's going to be a certain limit to which it's not even going to be possible, even if it were desirable, for Jews to to look at Israel a certain way if that's in, in, deep, uh, in deep dissonance with the way that they're looking at every other part of the world and, and their own country. And I mean, this is what Peter Barnard, I think, was talking about eight years ago when he wrote in the New York Review of Books, and, and I think that we're seeing that all the more so in the age of Trump. Yeah, I think you're right. The, um, if what I laid out is kind of accurate, that starting in the late 70s, you see a split between an Israelism and a progressive American Zionism, those two positions could ultimately have an uneasy but possible relationship throughout the, um, the 80s and especially into the, the peace process, where I think both sides, the left could kind of look toward a two-state solution as a way of reaching their goals, and the right could look toward the fact that it was going pretty slowly maybe to reach their goals. And as a result, these two communities were able to um, uh, kind of 
Band-Aid over some of the, the underneath fra fragmentation, but certainly the, the, the current administration gets right to the heart of the fact that at its core, the attitudes towards Israel are about attitudes towards America and attitudes towards um, uh, Judaism, and you have two really divergent communities, and the assumption has been that supporting Israel is apolitical, but in fact it has been quite political, and now it's more and more obviously political. So we're nearing the end of the episode, and I guess given our conversation so far with just in general complicating what Zionism is and what the term means and what it's been at various eras in history, like I'm really appreciating all of that, but it also just leads me to ask sort of is the term Zionism salvageable? Like does it work in a, in a world where people are using Zionism so much in a way that does really signify questions of Jewish statehood. Can we get these other meanings of the term that have historically existed back into the equation, or do we need like something else, some other set of terms? Yeah, I grapple with that all the time. I think whether or not Zionism can be reclaimed, or whether or not it's just going to mean Israelism and you need a new term. Ironically, peoplehood was that new term in the 30s and 40s for Kaplan, and today we don't really have an alternate term. The context of what it means to be a Zionist is also shaped by opponents of Zionism. And so the fact that uh, opposition to Israel is often framed in the language of, of, of we're anti-Zionists and the Zionist entity, I think reinforces the claims in the Jewish community that Zionism is the same as supporting the state of, of Israel. So there is a lot there. It's sort of like a, it's a reinforcing uh, relationship between what's considered pro-Israel and anti-Israel is sort of aligned with what is pro-Zionist and anti-Zionist. And both sides make use of those terms as synonyms. And I think that kind of erodes the possibility for that term. I don't know if it's, if it's possible to get over that question. I think, um, I think that that's that that's a that I don't know the answer to that, um, but but I, I I don't know that Zionism can be kind of rescued as a term. Although the more I do this research, the more I feel like it should be because the term has so much to offer in terms of the breadth of possibilities that it relates to. And I think when it seems so kind of binary today, you know, are you pro or anti-Israel? As if you know supporting this or that will make you on, on one side or the other. And I think the, the, the truth is, is that being, being a Zionist is, um, it, it can mean lots of different things. And it, it, it means you're interested in having some kind of Jewish connection to the land of Israel. But we've had thinkers who talk about it in ways that would key Jewish thinkers, Zionist thinkers, leaders who have talked about it in ways that today we get them kicked out of their synagogues. And I think the fact that um, it's worth remembering that Zionism was far more capacious in the past than it is in the present. Thank you so much, Noam Pianko, for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation and we're really excited to just sort of take this all in and apply it to the future conversations we have. Thanks. Sure. My pleasure. Thank you. And thanks so much to all of you out there for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we want to close it out as we always do by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a few ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. 
Second, you can always hit us up on Twitter at at Judaism Unbound. Next, you can head to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can hit us up via email at Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. The last plug we like to make is that you can always support us with a financial donation, either on a monthly recurring basis or a one-time basis. You can do either of those at JudaismUnbound.com slash donate. So thanks so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.